0: We're here to talk about cardiac surgery at a rural mission hospital, so if that's not what you were expecting, you can graciously leave now (laughs) uh, if you got in the wrong spot. Just so we know who we all are, I'm Russ White, and I work at Tenwick Hospital in Kenya, East Africa. Uh, This is our 18th year there as a family now. Uh, Who do we have in the audience? How many medical students are here today? Okay, a lot of medical students. How many residents? All right, how many uh, attending physicians? All right, how many nurses? we have any nurses today? Yeah, great. And how many people work in the cardiac field? All right, so a fair number. Um, well, good. Well, I want you to feel free to, to uh, ask questions uh, <clears throat> throughout this time. I am going to leave some time at the end, and I have some questions to put to you to spark some discussion as well. Um, That's where I work. That's what Tenwick Hospital looks like. Uh, Can you all see that, or do we need to try to dim any lights? Is it? Dimming would be good. Maybe some brave person can go try a switch and see what happens, because I don't know. (laughs) So that's better? Okay. Let's go with that. We're in Beaumont which uh, you won't find on any really big maps. It's out in southwest Kenya. It's about four hours west of Nairobi, almost straight west, um, towards Lake Victoria. Um, So we're in what's called the Western Highlands. If you cross the Great Rift Valley and then go up into the highlands, that's where we are in the kind of tea-growing area of Kenya. Um, The hospital has grown a lot in the years Uh, Since I've been at Tenwick, uh, we've added many new buildings, many new programs, a lot of things going on. So those are the kind of numbers that we generally see, about 150,000 outpatients per year that come through, about 15,000 admitted. We do, it's sometimes hard to get a a, a real hard handle on how many operations we do because they're done in many different OR settings, but probably about 8,000, do about 15,000 endoscopic procedures per year. Uh, we have a big problem with esophageal cancer, and so I do a lot of work in that as well. Um, and then uh, we, we have a CT scan, which we've only had for, what's well, almost three years now, uh, that has changed the practice of what we do. I do far less exploratory craniotomies anymore than I used to do. Um, and we have residency programs in general surgery, orthopedic surgery, and family practice, and a fellowship in endoscopy and research. Uh, We're participating with the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons, so our residency program uh, is under that umbrella, uh, and there's booths uh, for you to get some more information from them. And we're also under the auspices of the College of Surgeons of East, Central, and Southern Africa, which is the licensing credentialing. It's like the American College of Surgeons would be here. It involves 10 different countries in East, Central, and Southern Africa, Africa that are shown on that map. And my personal responsibilities with with the college, um, I direct surgical education for those residents within Kenya. Uh, I write the e-learning cases for all the residents in all those 10 countries and the educational conferences and I direct the board exams, which I'll be going to in three weeks from today to uh, start those for about a week uh, in Tanzania this year. What I hope we can do today um, is talk a little bit about the epidemiology of rheumatic heart disease in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, I'll try to describe the evolution of cardiac surgery at Tenwick Hospital to give you some idea of what it takes to, to go from essentially no cardiac work at all to a fairly active cardiac program at this time and give you an idea of the kind of hurdles and obstacles and uh, things that any of those of you who have this type of work in mind uh, would be helpful for you to understand. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about the uh, ethical considerations in beginning a cardiac program and in running a cardiac program. And then I want to give you a brief view of the broad practice of cardiothoracic surgery uh, so that it hopefully excites you that uh, there's quite a broad view of things that we see. I hope if I can perhaps inspire you a little bit on one hand and perhaps frighten you a little bit on the one hand, or, or maybe not frighten, but give you cause to pause and think about all the things that go into it, um, I, that's what I hope to accomplish uh, to pull off something like cardiac surgery at a mission hospital. I have no financial disclosures, I have no financial interests whatsoever, actually. Uh, <laughs> in general. So heart disease in Africa, really, is, is this really a problem? Isn't, isn't all that we deal with parasites and infectious diseases, isn't that what Africa is about? And it's true, we do see a lot of parasites and infectious diseases. So this is a pretty common x-ray that we see many times at Tenwick. Uh, my training, to let you all know, I was trained in general surgery uh, at Brown University, and then I did a cardiothoracic fellowship in England following that, but I was strongly in the thoracic side of that training. I did as minimal cardiac as I could to to finish the fellowship, and that's why I went to England because I could focus on it because I said, we'll never do cardiac surgery at Tenwick. It's just I don't see that ever happening, Um, and I went to Tenwick with that training. Uh, But this is a very common x-ray, and uh, this is the most common cause of bowel obstruction among children in Kenya. Uh, And this is ascaris, so you can see these on the x-ray. Those are worms within the the intestine. And when you operate on those patients, you'll see something like that. And when you finish up the – we're not before lunch, so we should be good here. And, you know, you can spend a lot of money on lab tests and subtype those things and find out what they are. I've found that the taste test is really the simplest and easiest way. And once you've done it a few times, my partner Mike Chupp likes to do – worm art during cases, <laughs> usually on the back table while waiting for a resident to close up a case. And that's a tapeworm. That's a CT scan that we might see commonly now, and that is echinococcal disease of the liver, which is quite advanced with all this calcification. And we operate on quite a few of these with installation of uh, scolicidal agent. And then that's what you'll get when you open up that cyst with many, many daughter cysts. And as you know, it's an unusual... Lifestyle, a life cycle going between sheep and sheep or goats and dogs, and then the humans get infected on the side. Um, and you can do actually art with, <laughs> to teach a lesson that dogs plus goats equals echinococcus. Um, but really, heart disease in Africa, I mean, is it, isn't it all those other things that we spend all our time in? Um, well, it's not the typical heart disease that we see here in the United States. It's not from eating too many Big Macs in general or eating really big burgers or eating even bigger burgers. That's not the kind of heart disease that we see. Um, Is it really a problem? And some would say, aren't you just making a mountain out of a molehill? You're finding some little small thing elevating it to a a big need. Well, as it turns out, even in the United States, moles cause billions of dollars in damage (laughs) annually. And in Africa, cardiac disease causes tremendous problems. There's been a lot of literature written in recent years looking at the relative contribution of acute and infectious causes of illness uh, in the developing world and chronic conditions. And as you can see from this 2007 publication, chronic diseases have outstripped the acute and infectious complications that we see uh, in most Uh, Countries in most developing countries. Here's a graph looking at 27 selected lower and middle income countries from the World Health Organization and the contribution of various diseases. And the black or gray bars are those that are due to chronic disease. And in all of these countries, it's a a majority of the conditions that are being treated uh, in those countries. Here's one. It's not just the elderly either. Here's a graph showing the estimated deaths averted and years of life gained by a 2% annual reduction in deaths due to chronic diseases in those 23 countries. So if they could achieve a 2% reduction in deaths, they would gain 250 million years of life. 250 million years of life for people less than 59 years of age. So chronic disease is a big problem, and it causes a lot of death uh, within the African continent. If you look strictly at just gross numbers like mortality rates across the world, Africa jumps out at you. It's the red part, and it's sub-Saharan Africa, primarily, uh, where death rates are very high. If you look at deaths due to cardiovascular disease and diabetes, once again, where is it the strongest? It's in Africa, and not surprisingly, Africa has the lowest life expectancy on the planet when you look at it from a continental uh, type of picture. And again, it's not just the very elderly. Among those less than 70 years of age, this graph shows that chronic disease accounts for 50% of all deaths, and of those deaths, 25% are due to heart disease and diabetes. Um, So what accounts for these high death rates and how... Life expectancy uh, is low in the majority of these young people in Africa. Does anybody know what this is? Somebody knows. Something you don't see much in the U.S. Yes? It's the dance chorea. That's half of it. Sydenham's Korea. Yeah, so this is Sydenham's Korea, which is part of the diagnosis, one of the major criteria for acute rheumatic fever, which can then develop to chronic rheumatic heart disease. And so we see patients like this frequently. And where is rheumatic heart disease? Not surprising again. Uh, The majority of rheumatic heart disease occurs in sub-Saharan Africa. In fact, if you look at the numbers, half of all rheumatic heart disease in the world occurs in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, you have to bear in mind that about 25% of all disease, global disease burden, 25% occurs in sub-Saharan Africa. If you look at global health expenditure for disease, it's less than 1% of the world's health expenditure goes to take care of the needs of the 25% of the disease of this world. So it's grossly outshadowed uh, by what's going on. And it's interesting to note that the statistics from Africa are generally notoriously unreliable and, in nearly all cases, grossly underreported. <clears throat> Here's multiple studies looking at the efficacy of clinical examination versus echocardiographic examination in the diagnosis of rheumatic heart disease. And in generally all cases, clinical examination fails to diagnose most cases. In most cases, echo exams are 10 to 20 times more sensitive in finding patients with asymptomatic rheumatic heart disease. The point being that it's a common condition and it's often underreported. So these are the kind of patients I see at Tenwick. This is a 17-year-old boy who has stopped going to high school and stopped working at home. He can't walk from that door to that door without stopping and resting and he has aortic insufficiency, mitral insufficiency, and mitral stenosis. Uh, He's in tough shape, and uh, there's not much you can offer him. There's no medical therapy at this stage that is going to help him. Of course, we generally have these patients on diuretics and digitalis, uh, at times beta blockers carefully, uh, blood pressure control. But these are the patients that uh, will die Of this condition. When they come to the operating room, this is what they look like with a very large heart, with a PMI that's beating down near their spleen, usually, and uh, again, their lifestyle is exceedingly limited uh, by what they can do, and their life expectancy uh, is pretty short. Um, Looking at a study from Ethiopia, which had a relatively low prevalence, and again, remember that was a clinical study, not an ECHO study, they described a 12.5% annual uh, mortality. So every year, 12.5% of these patients will die, and the average age of death is 26 years. So it's a huge number of people. As we speak right now at Tenwick Hospital, I have 350 people between the ages of 12 and 30 who are on a waiting list for valve surgery. I won't get to them all. They will The majority of those will probably die before I can operate on them. I have another 1,000 patients on a waiting list to be screened, and many of them will die as well. So it's a big, big problem. That's another parasite, just to keep you awake. That's a 4-year-old child with acute cholecystitis. And uh, after I removed his gallbladder, I thought I should do a common bile duct exploration, and, and that's what came out of his common bile duct. Those are ascaris worms. Uh, as well. And uh, he had 13 worms in his common bile duct and one more in his uh, gallbladder, just for good measure. This is what led us initially, and I have to be honest, I really dragged my feet for a long time. So I said I did cardiothoracic training in my fellowship, but I, I focused almost purely on thoracic because that's what I was heading to. I had an interest in esophageal cancer, was heading to Kenya knowing that's what I would do so I did as, as little as I could to finish the program uh, in that setting there. We got to, to Kenya, and uh, for the first uh, five, six, seven years, it was just one other surgeon, Dr. Chupp, who's in the back row, and myself, uh, just handling everything. And we were far too busy to think about anything else. I was too busy learning about orthopedics and urology and neurosurgery and plastic surgery and gynecology to to think of anything else. But every now and again... Our pediatrician would call me and he'd say, Russ, there's a kid here with a really bad heart valve. Why don't you operate on him? He'd call me at like 2 in the morning and he'd say, this child's dying on me. You can't make him any worse. So I'd say, oh, I can definitely make him worse. I can kill him really quick on the operating room table. And he would call me over and over and I'd say, we're not set up to do that. I can't, can't help this child. And these cases would keep coming and keep coming. I had a friend... Come over from the U.S. in 2006, a colleague who's a cardiac surgeon at Brown University where I work when I'm in the United States. He was hoping to set up a cardiac program at one of the other government hospitals in Kenya, and he found it to be just untenable. It wouldn't work. And he said, can I come down to Tenwick and see what you guys do? I said, sure. And he came down, and we saw some of these kids, and he said, we should operate on these kids. I said, Jim, we don't have the stuff to do this. He said, well, we could do a closed mitral commissurotomy." Now, that's an old-fashioned operation. This is a 1962 drawing from Netter that described it. We didn't find this picture until we'd done four cases, and then we were really happy that we did it the way the picture showed. Because <laughs> surgeons like pictures. I like pictures. I like diagrams, flap A into slot B, and you can make sense of that. Um, but I, I said, Jim, have you ever done this operation? He says, no, no, nobody's done that in years. <laughs> Uh, he, I, he, he said, we need a tubs dilator. I said, well, actually, when I graduated from fellowship, one of the consultants there, as a gift, gave me a tubs dilator for a museum piece, really. And it sat on my bookshelf for many years, just looking nice. And I said, well, I have one on my bookshelf right there. And so we, <laughs> we sterilized it, put it in the autoclave, and we went to the operating room and did this first case uh, with a little bit of trepidation. And that was our first case. Uh, with the Tubbs dilator there on the table. This was my son watching. My son is now 20 years old. So this was a few years ago uh, when we did this case. Uh, the operation itself is straightforward to describe. It's a left anterolateral thoracotomy. You've got to get to the left atrial appendage. And if you go through a sternotomy, you'll have a lot of trouble getting to that appendage if you're not on bypass. And we didn't have bypass available um, you put a purse string in that left atrial appendage uh, and then put a purse string in the left ventricle. You've got to elevate the heart up out of the chest a bit to get at that. And these are tenuous hearts at times and, and very reactive hearts, and it can cause problems. It causes anxiety. It causes people to lose their sphincter continence at times and things. Um, <clears throat> and then a, uh, you place your... Your finger, you make a stab incision in the left atrial appendage, put your finger into the, the left atrium. On a, the heart is beating, and you can feel the, the stenosed valve. Uh, you introduce then the, the dilator through a stab incision in the left ventricle through the purse string, and I usually put two, because if that one blows, you're in a lot of trouble at that time. Uh, and then place the tub's dilator through and, and dilate the valve. So that was our first patient that we did back in 2006. He's post-op day one after he's had this done and he went home in three days. Um, We did 15 more uh, without backup and uh, we had one intraoperative death which taught me a very important lesson about very big uh, dilated thinned out atria that are difficult to deal with. Uh, One of those patients required eventually a mitral valve replacement five years later. But this encouraged us that perhaps we should go on. Now that operation, again, it's an old operation, but it still finds its, its place at times. This was a lady who came in just this past February. Uh, she is uh, 22 years old, and she's 24 weeks pregnant. She's lost two babies already in previous pregnancies, in late pregnancy, uh, due to congestive heart failure related to her severe mitral stenosis. Um, She had very tight mitral stenosis on echo. She had a peak gradient across the mitral valve of 32 millimeters, which is severe stenosis, and a mean gradient of 21. Um, So we decided we did not want to put her. We now do have bypass capability. I thought that putting her on bypass would put her baby at significant risk and that we could do this with bypass backup if we got into trouble. Uh, So we did. That's her post-op X-ray, day one. Her post op x ray day four. Uh, her gradient had dropped to nine millimeters across the valve. She was now in moderate stenosis and uh, symptomatically vastly improved. And that's her with her baby four weeks or six weeks later uh, that she delivered. So there still is an occasional place for this. And now Ron Johansson and some other guys come over and they can do some very fancy things with balloons. So this is a transseptal puncture and doing the same thing across the mitral valve with a balloon uh, if you have the capabilities uh, and the adequate fluoroscopy to do this. Uh, You can't stick to just thoracic. You get called to do a lot of different things. So I do a lot of cleft lips and palates over the years, and here's some of these little guys. Here's a very severe bilateral cleft with a few other problems, and that little fella at the end of his case. Unfortunately, most of our patients do not have isolated mitral stenosis. In fact, less than 3% of patients with rheumatic disease will have isolated stenosis. And to do a closed mitral commissurotomy, you really have to have pure mitral stenosis. Think about it. If they've got moderate mitral regurgitation and you stick a valve, a dilator and then crack it open, you're going to now have wide-open mitral regurgitation, and you can make them significantly worse There's a a guy in India doing, he's really pushing the envelope of balloon procedures. Um, We talk about if the valve is calcified at all, it's not a good option because you can shower calcium into the systemic circulation. Um, He's focused more on the commissures, and if the commissures are pliable, he'll go ahead and and do that. Um, One of the things I learned is that in India, the government will pay for a, a balloon procedure. They will not pay for a valve replacement so it it you know it changes your your how far you'll push that envelope and where we are they won't pay for anything so uh, it doesn't affect us um, but most of my patients look something like this so here you can see a very dilated left atrium and a very thickened abnormal mitral valve and a very thickened and eccentric aortic valve aortic valve here and mitral valve here and if you add uh, if you take an apical view of that, you can see just how gross, grossly deformed that valve is. All of this is calcified, thickened, fibrous valve, uh, which is uh, causing significant obstruction and regurgitation. If you add color flow to that, you can see the high flow across the mitral valve. You can see severe aortic regurgitation and mitral regurgitation. So this patient is not going to be helped with a commissurotomy procedure for sure, uh, or Many patients look like this uh, with isolated mitral disease, but a very poorly functioning left ventricle. So this is a high-risk patient to do anything on. um, Or, And if you add color, you can see the the massive uh, mitral regurgitation that this patient is suffering from. Um, Or we see quite a few who look like this with uh, isolated mitral disease and a large clot in the left atrium. And once again, you can't manage this safely with a percutaneous-type procedure. So this then pushed us um, to say, can we move in to open-heart surgery and bypass? And I said, Jim, this is going to require a lot of equipment, a lot of training, a lot of expense. And he's a very excited guy. He said, I know, I know, and I'm on it with you. And let's see if we can do this. And they started bringing in... uh, Uh, Bypass machines, we now have three so that we have backup, which we've learned. You really should have backup when one of the roller head goes out in the middle of a case. You've got about 30 seconds to get that changed and over and uh, on to the other if you don't want to go on total circulatory arrest. Um, And teaching of how to use this equipment. So we had a number of people from a variety of institutions, Brown University, Vanderbilt University, Uh, the Ocala Heart Institute in Florida, Mayo Clinic, a variety of people who've come to help us uh, work with this, reminding me, teaching, reteaching me, you know, I said, yeah, I did those things quite a few years ago, Uh, and working with our staff, working with our nurses, with our anesthetists, uh, teaching how to use this equipment, troubleshooting old equipment, teaching our our perfusionist. So we had to train a a perfusionist. And we took a nurse anesthetist and spent a lot of time with him, training him in perfusion. And he's now our chief perfusionist and our anesthetist, working with the cardiac anesthesiologist uh, to learn techniques of cardiac anesthesia and invasive monitoring uh, placement. And then we began. We began really with purely donated materials. So everything being donated from, from the the equipment, the uh, bypass machine, cell savers, all the rest, to the valves themselves. And early on, we were putting in some bioprosthetic valves, which was probably not a wise idea, but that's all we had at the time. The, the half-life of those is fairly limited. When you put in a valve in a 25-year-old, you're guaranteed you're going to go back and replace that within probably less than 10 years we started shifting uh, to mechanical valves and found that those are hard to get donated in this day and age because most people are not using them anymore because who are they putting valves in in the U.S.? They're putting them in 80-year-old people. And they put in a bio valve and they go on aspirin and Plavix or whatever they want to do. Um, but we did come across uh, a valve, the Onyx valve, which is a relatively new valve Uh, And this is not a promotion for Onyx. I'm just trying to tell you our story and how we learned about this. But this is a new valve that was created specifically trying to look at, to find that holy grail of cardiac surgery, of a less thrombogenic valve, which might allow you to use less anticoagulants. So this particular valve, the geometry of it, is such that it's less turbulent flow. The materials are pure carbon with no silicon and no metal parts that are in contact with the blood, and so it's a less thrombogenic surface. And we worked out an arrangement with the company that will supply them to us at cost. We still pay for them, but the cost is significantly less. We pay about $800 a valve uh, to purchase these valves, whereas on the market you'd spend probably $4,000 per valve. Um, And it allows then the possibility... Of less anticoagulation. In our setting, we choose anticoagulation on a case-by-case basis. So standard, if you're going to go take your boards after a mitral valve, you should have be on lifelong Coumadin with an INR target of 2.5 to 3.5. That's difficult in our setting. Many of our people live out in the bush. Many don't live near a clinic. Uh, and so we go on a case-by-case basis. If patients seem amenable and able to come back for follow-up, we'll put them on Coumadin. If not, we put them on aspirin. And I think in a couple of years we'll have one of the biggest studies, non-randomized studies on the use of aspirin alone uh, after following valvular surgery. <clears throat> and so we started putting in these valves. One of the advantages of long-standing rheumatic heart disease for the, for the surgeon is that most of these patients have a pretty big left atrium and a large annulus, so that you can put a, an adult-sized valve in most of these patients, even down to like age nine and ten, will fit an adult-sized valve uh, to, to last them for the rest of their, their lives. You know, they test these valves. You, I don't know how much you know about valves, but these valves get tested on those machines, and they put them through 500 years of, of beating, and they don't give out. So patients will say, "How long is this going to last me?" I say, well, like anything else, it's going to last the rest of your life. But uh, And how long is that going to be? I said, well, that's a harder question <laughs> to answer for you. Uh, and putting in uh, a variety of uh, mitral valves, aortic valves, and that's a, a mitral valve uh, in position at the end of the case. Um, our residents began working with us, and as one would expect, started to learn opening and closing the chest. That's our chief resident uh, working on closing a chest and opening a chest. Um, however, they rapidly progress to more and more crucial parts of the operation. And here's our chief resident uh, sewing in uh, an plasty ring. Uh, so we were very excited to see, because a major part of what we do at Tenwick is teaching and training. We're very committed to these teaching and training programs. And that's, in my mind, has to be a part of what we do in medical missions. If we're not teaching and training, the the long-range sustainability is is simply not there. So we have now, we have 14 residents in surgery. Um, Some of those are destined for orthopedics. Eventually we'll have, we have 10 in general surgery, 10 in orthopedic surgery, 8 in family practice, and I believe we'll be heading towards ophthalmology and OBGYN and a number of other things coming down the pike. But to see these residents learning, And they are really good residents, let me tell you. They are good, good surgeons. I work at Brown University. I work with the residents. I'm working with them right now. If I compare one of our chief residents at Tenwick with a chief resident at Brown, there's no comparison. I'd let the chief resident at Tenwick operate on me any day. At Brown, I'd say, you probably need a more senior colleague to help you with with this. Not not because of innate intelligence, but because of the experience and the amount of experience and responsibility they get during their training. So to see our two chief residents running a whole case, doing the intra-op echocardiogram, making decisions, doing the case together, finishing the case together, and taking care of the patient post-op in our ICU has been really very, very gratifying. We don't do a lot of cabbages. Again, we don't do the Big Mac thing. Occasionally we do, and here's... uh, Jim, my friend from Providence, teaching one of our residents, our chief resident, how to take down an uh, internal mammary for a cabbage. And then we saw, again, we were having an effect on rheumatic disease, but we saw all these, once people know you're doing heart surgery, they start sending all these children with congenital. And that's a whole different ball of wax now when you start talking about that. And uh, a colleague, a medical student friend of mine, who's a pediatric cardiologist at Vanderbilt, said, He contacted me one day. He said, I just feel like God wants me to move out and do something more in Africa. Do you know anywhere we could do pediatric cardiac surgery? (laughs) It's a matter of fact. Uh, And so they're now bringing a team over once a year for two weeks of pediatric cases. There's another team from the main medical center coming over, and we do congenital uh, cases on children. We will do, uh, in the absence of teams, we'll do patients 30 kilograms and up, with fairly straightforward valvular replacements. When we get into complex things like tetralogy of Fallot and, and core triatriatum and anomalous pulmonary veins, I say, I think we'll wait till the team comes and we'll handle this uh, together. And so we do a lot of ventricular septal defects and atrial septal defects on these little kids. Um, it's a joy to see them recover. When I came into the recovery room, they had a Purdue hat on this kid. And I said, "That—that that is awful. I'm not going <laughs> to. What kind of post-op care is that? And I went and got him a Michigan hat. Now, of course, I, I, I can't say much about Michigan this year. <laughs> Next decade we'll come back at some point. Uh, but to see these these little children. Here's a little girl who had been rejected by her family. They'd run out of money. There was nothing they could do. Uh, and brought her there. I talked to her, we're going to operate on your heart, and asked her if she knew Jesus. She said she'd heard of Jesus, but didn't know much more. I said, well, will we see him when we, when we look in there inside your heart? And she said, I don't know. And I said, well, why don't we make sure of that? And prayed with this little girl. And uh, when she woke up and was ready to go home, she said, so did you see him? I said, yes, <laughs> I did. I talked to him while I was there. Uh, so we see many, many kids coming through Uh, having their congenital or rheumatic disease done. And when we do these camps, this is a group of kids we did all in one week. We operate from from dawn till well after dusk every day taking care of all these children. And that requires a really big team if you're going to do that. We generally bring in an extra surgeon, uh, two pediatric cardiologists, two intensivists, four ICU nurses, an extra perfusionist, Uh, So it becomes a pretty big group to manage uh, groups like this. And this is a group we just did last January uh, as they're getting ready to go home uh, after their open-heart surgery. So to date, we've done 250 total open-heart cases with the numbers shown there. We have a 30-day mortality. We had four cases of death for 1.6% mortality. Return to the OR was less than 2%. We had... Looking at anticoagulation, we had one TIA six months post-op, and that patient was on Coumadin. We've had three delayed pericardial effusions requiring intervention that were all on Coumadin. So to date, all of our complications have been related to Coumadin. They've not been related to lack of anticoagulation. I put this in for Dr. Adolf. Uh, This is another thoracic case you might see. This is TB of the spine. And uh, that's an 18-year-old girl who's paralyzed for two months, can't walk at all. You can uh, go in. This is taking down the diaphragm to get at that T12 and uh, get that bone out of there. You can replace it. You can replace it with a wide variety of things. In this case, I chose a rib, and that's a rib graft. And that's originally described in Genesis chapter two. If you <laughs> look there, <laughs> it was the first thoracic surgeon in all of history who. Created something far bigger than than I have ever created, uh, but you can put that in, and that's, that's that girl walking home. Uh, that's the youngest patient I've ever seen with Pott's disease of the spine—a three-year-old who was paralyzed for six months with atrophied legs and uh, couldn't was completely paralyzed um, with loss of uh, continence. And I said, we can't help that girl. Obvious gibbous deformity. The family just pushed and pushed and. Said, would you try? And against my better judgment, I said we'd try. And that's her walking one week post-op. So God does things we are totally unaware of at times if we will be willing to be used by Him. So anticoagulation, as we finish, I want to just touch on that and then we'll discuss some things, um, is a dangerous endeavor. Yeah, especially in Africa. Here in the United States, when I'm in the United States, I do a lot of trauma work, and I think 90% of old people who get in car accidents are on Coumadin, and it's a terrible thing for the trauma department that everybody's on Coumadin, and I, somebody just bumps their head and ends up with a big bleed. So it's not a benign drug. It is rat poison. We know that. And uh, is there any... Do we have any support for doing this? Well, there have been a number of studies. This was looking at just children following valve replacement with the idea of lifelong Coumadin. Uh, And their numbers are small, uh, but they had some promising results. This was a little concerning to me, 11% VTE rate uh, in the mitral valve position. And that's well known that in the mitral position uh, with the lower flow rates, Uh, your your VTE rates are going to be higher. Uh, That's a bit concerning, but that was on no anticoagulation at all. Um, There is a study that was uh, reported in 2006 out of South Africa where they looked at patients uh, who were primarily young patients. Average age was 33 years. They had quite a few numbers. Uh, They had implanted 400. or 530 valves, and it was primarily rheumatic disease, particularly in the mitral position, which was the most common valve uh, that they dealt with. And what they did, they just looked at their patients. They, they put everyone on Coumadin, but then retrospectively they went back and said, how many of you actually took your Coumadin? And almost half didn't take their Coumadin or didn't show up for follow-up visits at all. And they looked at their results They had 14 total events, thromboembolic events, out of that whole group, um, three of which were fatal, five of which were transient, uh, and the remainder had some permanent deficit. And as they looked at freedom from thromboembolic events, this is what they saw. The double valve patients were certainly higher. (coughs) If you break out just the aortics and mitrals, you can see that's a pretty low rate of thromboembolic events predicted uh, over time. And bleeding events, they had nine total events, one of which was fatal. Uh, and again, this is predicted events at, uh, related to bleeding. Uh, but what you can see here, bleeding events, now this is thrombosis of the valve itself. This is thromboembolic events. Uh, but you've got a 1% per patient year risk of bleeding, a 1.5% patient per patient year risk of thromboembolic events. They're not that far apart. And that's kind of putting it all together. Um, If you look at mitral valve disease alone, again, you're looking at 1% per year per patient year incidence of bleeding and 1.5% per patient year of uh, of thromboembolic events. Uh, The study was limited, was limited by its five year follow-up. They should go out longer, but they did have quite a few total patient years. They didn't separate the analysis based on who was anticoagulated and who wasn't, which disappointed me. I thought, well, let's hear the difference. And were were all those thromboembolic events in those who didn't receive anticoagulation? And I don't know the answer to that. There is a study going on right now. They've accrued all the patients, and they're looking at the controls. This is a company-sponsored study from the Onyx company, where they're looking at uh, uh, these all patients get put in standard anticoagulation for three months and then get stratified out to this uh, either uh, aspirin and clopidogrel uh, or Coumadin uh, or aspirin alone in some cases. And we'll wait and see what this study uh, has to say. This was another patient they called me about just a few months ago and I was asleep, and they started telling me about this trauma, and they described an entry and an exit wound. And I said, are we talking about a gunshot wound? And they said, no, it's an elephant attack. I said, entry and exit from an elephant, like the tusk? And they said, yeah. I said, well, I I think I'll come see this with you. And uh, so there's this entry wound. It's about an eight centimeter laceration, and there's his exit wound. And the guy described this, that's what it looks like on his chest, that the elephant got him from behind and picked him up, and he was up in the air and saw a tusk coming through his chest. And then the elephant tossed him off in the bushes. And I actually called our perfusionist and said, I think you should just be here. And I prepped out his groins and his chest. I echoed him, and his echo didn't look bad, and his chest x ray didn't look bad, and operated on him. He never even entered his chest, it went right through his falciform ligament. Uh, he lacerated one gastropopoic vessel that we had to tie off and mostly clean out a lot of elephant poop from, from within his body cavity. But uh, amazing, amazing story. If somebody had caught that on video, it would have been uh, viral today, but uh, they didn't. Some would say, what about primary prevention? Well, it's a massive undertaking. There's many political licensing issues. Most healthcare facilities are not even able to carry out strep assays. Is it a goal for the future? Sure. Wouldn't it be better to prevent this? Yes, but it's a huge, huge undertaking. What about secondary prevention? Identifying asymptomatic people and treating them, basically with long-acting antibiotics, until they turn 40 uh, to prevent damage. And it has been shown to be effective. Clinical screening can be a problem. We've just started an initiative of screening in the high schools with ECHO, single-view ECHO training, some of our clinical officers and techs to go do single view echo and uh, see what they can come up with. To date, uh, we were in an area that is relatively upper class, if I can use that word, in our region, Uh, and they found 6% incidence of occult rheumatic heart disease. We're now moving into looking at comparing a two view echo, still a very short, limited echo, and moving to screening poorer areas where the incidence is probably higher. And then as we conclude, I think there are some ethical questions that people often bring up. Can we justify the cost of surgery in these cases? What do we do about patients who cannot pay for this? Tenwick Hospital employs 620-some Kenyan staff that we pay their salaries, and it's all paid out of fees that are collected by the hospital. Now, our fees are far less than most private hospitals than all private hospitals really in the country. Um, But we're dependent on those fees in order to pay our salaries to the employees and to buy drugs and to buy suture and everything else. What do you do about a patient who can't pay? And should we not be focusing on prevention rather than treatment? I think these are some of the questions that come to my mind. So let's open it up. The cost of surgery. Single valve replacement. $3,000 $3,000 is what we have been able to bring that cost down to. The other options within Kenya, there are two other institutions in Kenya that do heart surgery. Now, that's for the whole region. So there's none in South Sudan. There's none in Tanzania. Uh, there's none in Uganda. There's, for, for all that area around there, Kenya is the only place. So there's two in the city, and there's us at Tenwick. Their charges are about $15,000. That's to get in the door. Uh, you're not going to get in the door without 15000 cash on the barrel head. So for $3,000, we could buy 60,000 worm pills. Is that a good use of resources? We could probably give 3,000 immunizations and prevent diseases. And we could probably do 60 cataract operations on blind people. Is this reasonable? Can we justify this expense I open it up to thoughts and comments or questions. There's gotta be some strong thinking, public health minded people in here. What do you think? Well if you have to extrapolate. If you're doing three thousand for one patient, the sixty thousand tablets, how many would you save dispensing that for? Okay. So the, the comment being that we're not talking just treating disease, but saving life. And m- one might look at that in a, a you could look at that in quality adjusted life years or years of life preserved, something like that. We talked about that other study where they looked at 250 million patient life years that could be saved with a 2% reduction in chronic disease. Yes that comes to my mind is, are those needs already being met from other sources? Very good question. Are those needs being met from other sources? And before I tip my hand, uh, we'll hear if there's any other, any other thoughts. Yeah. How many of your valve replacement patients go home to diet malnutrition or problems or malaria? Uh, good question. We've only been doing this for about seven years or so now. We've got very good follow-up on the ones we have, the... To date, late deaths that we've seen have been less than five of that group that we've seen from any number of conditions, you know, malaria or uh, other conditions. Yeah? I was just thinking about uh, available funding. I mean, if funding really is completely limited, um, then I guess you have to make those decisions. But if there's opportunity for fundraising in the states, um, why not? Okay, and I I think your question gets, I will tip my hand a little, gets to the over arching question, which is frequently asked to me. I do esophageal cancer surgery. I do a lot of it, and people will say the same. That costs probably $1,200 to do a full esophagectomy and hospitalization. People will say, I mean, gosh, in that, your chance of cure is low. We do have cures. I have long, many long-term survivors, but they say your overall chance of cure is low. Aren't you wasting your money? I have to say, first of all, it's not my money. <laughs> uh, in many cases, it's largely, to some degree at least, the patient's money, who is sick. Uh, and there is a there's a common fallacy I think out there that in missions type of work, there's one big pot of money, and it's a limited pot and we have to choose how we're going to use that pot. Now, there are cases where that's true. You might get a large grant from somebody for preventive health care, and you've got to decide how are you going to split that up into preventive health care. On the other side of that coin, though, is, for example, you ask about raising funds. I do raise funds to help with some of these patients, and I'll have people frequently say, you know, my child was saved at four years of age from congenital heart disease by an operation, can I help somebody in Africa who needs that? I say, sure. There are people who want to give to that. That's what they want to give to. So I'm not sure it's, it's reasonable for us to say, well, we don't think that's worth it. We're not, we don't think it's worth you giving $3,000 to give 50 years of life to a 15-year-old. We're going to take your money and give it to immunizations they probably say, well, I'm not giving it, because <laughs> that's not what I intended it for. So this whole idea that we have this limited pot, it's true in one sense, but it's not true in another sense. And people find different ways that they want to be involved. We are looking into some of those. Um, I've applied for a grant this year um, from one of the, the valve companies that has got a goal of treating 20,000 valvular heart patients in the underdeveloped world, in the next 10 years, and when I saw that grant, I said, "Hey, that's us. <laughs> we should give us that money. We'll spend it on valve patients in underprivileged areas of the world." So, and we're just starting to look into areas of um, fundraising within Kenya. There are programs like the other hospital that does some of the surgery. They have a big public relations campaign and they do marathon runs and fundraising and I'm saying why sh- why aren't we doing this we should be doing this um, and it just takes people to help do it the other thing I would say people will say to me you should be spending your money on immunizations that's what's important and I say I'm you know I'm pretty much for immunizations I think that's a good idea so my idea is you come to Africa and do it you come and Run that program and raise the money and do it and I will support you. I will do all that I can. That's just not what I feel God's called me to do. So they're not mutually exclusive and they're not competitive programs, I think, when you come to that. And we can get lost in this idea of the biggest bang for your buck, which is important at times. But to me, $3,000 for 50 years of life is a pretty big bang for a relatively small number of bucks if you compare to what you'd pay in the United States to have that done. What about patients who cannot pay? What do we do with them? Um, I think there's a few options. You can just deny surgery. It's one option. That's what they do at the other two hospitals. If you don't have money, too bad. Go home until you get money and find money. Um, We can wait until they find money. And we do do some of this at Tenwick Hospital. We, Depending on the situation, like the guy with the tusk coming through his chest. I didn't say, why don't you head home and get some money uh, <laughs> before we're going to have a look at you. But a, child, uh, a patient with rheumatic heart disease who's relatively stable, a moderate uh, case, ASA grade class 2, I'd say, you know, yeah, this needs to be done. It doesn't have to be done this week. So why don't you go, get your family together, put together a fundraiser, see what you can come up with. Uh, Now, don't run away. I want to see you back in three weeks and hear a report. But uh, that's an option. Um, You can assist with the cost of surgery, and you can simply pay entirely for the cost of surgery. What are your thoughts about this? Or you might have other options for me. I don't know. Those are the options I thought of. Any thoughts on this? What do you do with patients who can't pay and need heart surgery? I think there's, there's always two levels to it. One is kind of the, the uh, protocol or, or theoretical, and then the other one for every doctor is when that patient sitting in front of you. It's a real patient with a real mom and family. That's that's a harder one, and as physicians, we just can't turn those people away. So you so you can look at it theoretically and set of policy. We're not going to look at these people, but once. Yeah, when it gets to the individual, you're right. It's huge. For, for example, when we have this Vanderbilt team come every year, they're coming in February again, and I'll, I'll be just getting back in time for that, and we'll be screening a bunch of people. They're doing it now. But by the week they arrive, we'll have 30 kids present at the hospital. We can only do 20 of them in that time. We've got, we, we know that. We know we're going to tell ten people to go away. Um, and that's been called out of a hundred that we asked to come in. And how do you make that decision? It's not easy. There's no one trump card to the whole thing. Do we look at finances? Sure I look at finances. I look at, if, if, a, if I hear from a family, look, we have struggled all year. We sold our half of our farm, and the grandparents sold some of their money, and, and, and we're here now. We have prepared. I think, gosh, can I, can I say no because somebody else who doesn't have money, hasn't struggled and tried, uh, may have a condition that is more urgent than theirs? It's a very difficult question to answer. Of course we look at urgency of the, the case. In our estimation, in our prediction, what will happen if we make this child wait six months? Are going to get inoperable? they Are going to die? What, so all of those things go into that, that decision tree, and it's never an easy thing, and we pray about it long and hard, and we chat with the patients and try to come up with what we think is the best answer. Um, I've taken kind of a middle approach where I'll say, look, you need to find some money. You've got to go struggle with your family and see what you can come up with. At the same time, I raise funds. I do, and we... Try to work. Every case is individual. If I put up a sign at Tenwick said, if you're poor, we'll do your surgery for free, what do you think would happen? Every politician's sick kid would be there saying, I'm poor. Please do my kid for free. He'd drive his Mercedes in and say, help me. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to make that broad statement. And we look at each case individually as we decide who to help and how to help. That little girl I showed you, Paid for her whole operation. There was nobody. The family had abandoned her. There was nothing to do for this girl who I thought was totally correctable. Um, But that's an unusual situation. I don't do that most of the time. And finally, and this will close with this, shouldn't we be preventing this rather than curing it? Again, I I, I put these to you because these are the questions that come to me often. Um, I'll hear from my... Strong public health colleagues, you're wasting your time. You shouldn't be curing these things. You should be preventing them. And again, I usually say, you're welcome, Karibu, Kenya. (laughs) Come and get involved and prevent this. I would be very happy if we didn't have to deal with this. Um, A little cartoon, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. The patient says, yeah, unless you're sick. (laughs) Um, Sure, those are good goals, but they're not mutually exclusive goals. We're going to continue to have kids with rheumatic heart disease that could have been preventable for sure for years. And we have to deal with those those children and in a loving, kind, and caring way try to take care of them. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness from among the people. We are called to emulate Christ. We are as Christians, we are meant to be Christ-like and follow His example. He didn't just give immunizations; He actually cured leprosy, and He He uh, He talked about preventive medicine as well. He said, "You need a whole change of your heart. You know, you need more than just this. You need to prevent the, the lifestyles that have gotten you into some of this trouble." But He cured the conditions as well, and I think. Probably until the Lord returns, we're going to have a combination of dealing with curative care and preventive care. And the two are both very important. Any last comments before we have a couple of minutes here? Yeah. You said you have two teams that come twice a, year. Well, twice a year come in. If you had additional teams, would that be helpful? Yeah, it's, um, that's a tricky question. We're... I have to stagger these teams because when a team comes in, it sets the whole institution on its nose. And now the orthopedists are telling me I can't get an OR to do the broken bones, and then, you know. And I say, "Why well, a kid dying here of heart disease. You know, you get into those discussions. And the ICU, the recovery room, turns into our cardiac ICU. Um, my thought, I'll give you my big vision: uh, we need to build not a separate unit, but a a facility that we can handle this in and not influence the others so much. Um, You know, even myself, I finish heart cases all day, and then there's the bowel obstructions waiting, and I do those at night. The, The work has to go on in all those areas. So with the level of staffing that we currently have and the facilities that we currently have, we're running close to the edge. I do, so I try to do, we're almost there to a point where I can do two open hearts per week all year long uh, to kind of keep those 350 at bay, and then when we do a team, we do many, many during that time. But I'm I'm pushing the limits of our facilities at this point in time, and we're going to have to look toward, I'm looking toward starting a cardiothoracic fellowship program, the general surgery program is running well, and we have some more general surgeons joining us as faculty, and I feel like I may be able to then step into some further roles, but we're going to need facilities as well to do that. These are the things I never predicted. I would never predicted 18 years ago that, oh, yeah, you'll be doing this, and you're building a heart hospital or whatever, and I don't know if that's what the Lord has, but it's exciting to see how it rolls along and plays out over time. Yeah. Um, have you, because you have, especially if facility is in the future, um, maybe would be a nice facility. Um, Would there be any possibility, I've heard a lot recently about medical tourism and um, the option for hospitals to take in Westerners to get cheaper surgeries done as a source of funding? (laughs) That's an interesting thought. Yeah. Um, I operate on Westerners Not infrequently, who come to visit Tenwick and end up with appendicitis or a kidney stone or something else that we end up taking care of them. But it would be a possible. There'd be a lot of international legal issues to work out there. But we've talked about that many times. I said, "Come on over and get your screening colonoscopy for forty bucks and take a trip to the Masai Mara while you're here." You know. Yeah. Yeah, we. We, so the donations that I raise, we don't, I don't raise donations for the operational expenses. Again, I've said we're, we're pretty well self-sufficient. But for special things, so we, we have, for example, a special fund called the Compassionate Surgical Fund. And that goes towards helping these kind of people who just cannot pay for these expensive cases. And when we do a, a capital campaign like building a new heart hospital or building a new we're, – we're just finishing now a new residency – dormitory, which is going to house 36 residents. We have no space to put our residents in training. We're packed solid, and so we're finishing one. Those types of things, I raise funds to help develop. What about another organization doing what you're doing in one of those areas that doesn't have it, say Uganda or something? Yeah. Well, that is, uh, that's, I think that's part of the motivation of conferences like this for people to say, wow, there's such a big need, why don't we establish another center uh, in another place and learn, build from what they did at Tenwick and move on from there and develop something else. There is a bit of a consortium of cardiothoracic people who are interested because there's very few places in the world you can go in a mission setting and do that kind of work. So there are people saying, can we expand this into other areas? And I think we'll see that coming. Maybe some of you who are in residency or medical school will feel called to go into cardiothoracic surgery or cardiology. If, if you know a cardiologist who wants a full-time job, please send them my way, and a cardiac anesthesiologist and an intensivist, please send them to me and I'll give them a job because we would love to have them, but some of you might be those very people. So Yep, last question, and we're done. For those of us that advise medical students and residents in the room, for those that are interested in coming and participating for a month or two months as far as trying to see in their life, what are opportunities for them to Sure. We have a well-oiled track for for senior medical students and for residents. And pretty much all of them go through a World Medical Mission, who has a booth right out here, Branch of Samaritan's Purse, and they give you the application, set you up, and you can say, I want to go to Tenwick, and they might say, we're not sure we can get you there, and you can say, I really want to go, and they'll usually figure out a way to make that work to get you there. So that is an option. So I think our time is up, and thank you all very much.